0: Yo, so Jamar, okay, you brought up this really interesting point. Um, we've been talking about the statement of social justice in the gospel. We've been talking about um, a number of different things as far as our perceptions of it. And, you know, I really want to get into some some theology, man, because I think it's important to know, for people to know where we stand theologically, but also, you know, where we stand, um, you know, in terms of statements like this, in terms of interactions with people. And I think it may be helpful for people to understand, like, where, how we come up with responding to things, right? How we come up with right. interacting with people that we may disagree with. Um, this is a particular interaction that we're having right now, but we've had other interactions in the past with people privately, you and I have, that have been really productive. And so those aren't really on, you know, on public notice. Like those aren't really something that happens on on a social media. Those aren't really something that happens you know where people are like oh these these people had this talk or we put up an instagram or an insta story and we say look at this we had this talk with so and so and it was productive and it was good but man I, I think it's really important for people to think through the usage of their time and how do they use time in a way that is both productive and redeeming for the effort that they're going for and so the the big question is man how do we decide how do we decide like what's necessary um, for us to respond to. Can you can you speak a little bit to that? So
1: we don't respond to everything. Let's just put that out there, right? Because, as you mentioned in part one, Tyler, what we're attempting to do is address the core concerns of Black people, Black Christians. And so not everything that is on our radar is on other people's radar, and we don't want to primarily be a ministry of responding. But be, beyond that, it's like real dialogue doesn't always take place in public. And so I choose not to respond when the only requests are ever public. Come on my show, respond yeah. on Facebook, so yes. on and so forth. Because Tomorrow, to me, yes. that's about platform and not about coming to a, an understanding. So, I mean, no, we don't. And, and I'm going to say a lot more on I want to I talk directly to the quiet exodus and how yes. we can maneuver in these days and ages. But what are your thoughts on, like you have a really good grid that I've come to trust and rely on as far as when to respond or not to?
0: Bro, I don't know if I do, but I will say <laughs> this. I do have convictions on when and how we respond to things. I think that's very important for the witness. I think it's important for us to to maintain fidelity to the message, what God has called us to do. Now, there are some people they built their platforms and they built their ministry on, um, reacting to everything or kind of calling out people. Um, it's kind of a a interesting little dynamic. And I recognize that sometimes call outs are necessary public rebukes, but if that's all that you do, then I start to question whether or not that's something we necessarily want to be a part of. Um, we've never really built the witness that way, even before when it was a reformed African American network. It wasn't really that way. It was if there was a, a brewing controversy that people were giving their takes on biblically. This is what it looks like for this purpose, that purpose. This is what it looks like in these in these spheres. This is what how this group will respond to to something like this. Then I think that's necessary and I think that's what we're doing here with the statement of social justice and the gospel. But a lot of people are like, "Man, when are you going to interact with the other side? When are you going to interact with with every when are you going to interact with the other? When are you going to interact with other people?" I'm like, "Oh, man. Number one, it makes it seem as though everything that happens online is the only thing that happens. Hmm. Like what happens on Twitter, what happens on in the Facebook thread, that's it. What happens on the podcast, that's it. And to be honest, that's dangerous. That's not all that happens. We got lives outside of this. And that's important because if the only invitations that we've ever gotten or received from people is with cameras on, with mics recording, and where people can take sides and kind of lob, oh, look at this quote and this quote, look at that quote. Oh, he got you here. He did all this. Then what's the point of this? Like I start to question the authenticity of the invitation. Is this about a conversation or is this about a confrontation? Now, if you just want to confront stuff, you confront with what we already got. You can splice it up, cut it. And people have done that. Um, you can you can cut it, splice it up. You can play points and respond to it as you feel needed. But I just personally don't think there's any real efficacy. There's any real help in promoting unity in the body. And this is the, this is the funny thing. So I'll give you an example, right? There's one particular person who's responded to Jamar's article, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and says some some very strong things about Jamar, and he's he's done this multiple times. His name is James White. You guys might know him. He's a uh, you know he's an apologist. He's um, a Bible teacher. Um, I believe in some way, shape, or form, operating in pastoral ministry out on the West Coast. And so he's responded to us, said certain things about us, and you know we haven't responded to everything. We some of that we just let it slide. We're like whatever it is, what it is. But really, the only indication that we've gotten that he wants to have a quote-unquote conversation with us. Now, originally he had said, you know, in March of 2016, he had originally said that he wasn't going to talk back and forth with people. That when he was saying, you know, people want me to read social studies and, and interact and engage with the narrative. And he said, and I quote, I'm not interested in that at all. I have no interest in that. So I said, okay, all right, well, you know, if you don't have any interest in interacting with anything that might Challenge your framework or anything like that, well, then maybe this isn't a conversation that we need to have. But all the conversations that he's invited Jamar onto and other people that I've seen, most of those conversations I know for Jamar have been to come on his show, The Dividing Line. And I'm like, man, like, is the only way we can have a conversation on your show to build your brand? Is the only way we can have a conversation on our show to build our brand? Or can we have conversations with the mics off? With the cameras off, nobody lobbing comments, nobody giving you claps, nobody saying, look at this, retweet, like this, like that. I'll give you an example. So there was this dude who was one of the initial signers of the statement of social justice and the gospel. One of the initial signers, one of the people who was responsible for the creation. He posted something last year, took a screenshot of something that I said out of context, I felt, and posted that. And so I said, you know, this is kind of interesting because his followers were kind of launching and engaging in an ad hominem attacks. So they were coming after me. They were calling me a false teacher. I mean, very strong accusations for you know one small statement that I made. And so I reached out to him via Facebook. I didn't publicly come at him. I just reached out to him via Facebook. I was like, hey, listen, like, is there any way we can talk about this? Because I feel like, um, number one, I'm being misrepresented without context Then number two, I feel like some of these attacks um, are a little bit personal for what we're talking about, and I'm surprised that you would let this go on on your wall. And so I didn't receive a response, so I reached out to him via Twitter, and we exchanged numbers. So we exchanged numbers, and then just about an hour later, we had um, a talk on the phone for over an hour. We talked for a very long time. And so did we necessarily change each other's minds? Did we convert one to our our side or, or another side? No, but what we were able to do was ask hard questions. We were able to clarify points of disagreement. We were able to talk about the gospel. We were able to interact and engage with some of the things. Now, personally, I would diverge greatly from some of the ways and some of the things that he says, of course, as, as a signer of this statement, I kind of push back on that. But at the end of it, he said, you know what, I'm going to take this down because I don't want this to happen on my wall If you said it happened, it happened. I don't want this to happen on my wall. I don't want this to go on. So I'm going to take this down. And so we were able to have a conversation. We were able to exchange numbers. We were able to to build some sort of initial brotherhood behind the scenes. Now, not every public statement requires a private response. We recognize that. If it's public, it's fair game for people like James White or fair fair game for other people to, to critique. And that's fair game for us to critique on his side as well. It goes both ways what I do recognize is that there is something about building a relationship that shows me whether or not you want to have a conversation or a confrontation. Happened before with another person, another Black man who I interacted with who's been on James White's show. We interacted for hours behind the scenes. And then eventually I went on his show thinking that it would be a place for us to have open dialogue. Now, I found out that it was kind of the deck was stacked and there was some interesting things that happened. But we had a good conversation. And at the end of the day, I was able to say, listen, I know you personally. I know you outside of public Facebook. I know you outside of Twitter. I know you outside of your online persona. And so my question is, are we having real conversations behind the scenes? Or is this just a public confrontation because I have to be the orthodoxy guy? Or I have to be the justice guy? Or I have to do this? Or I have to do that? Or is this something we're really living out because of we, Man, that's faking. And we don't have any desire to engage in building up a brand, his or ours, in a way that requires us to call out people, bring them on, and only interact with them via the show. Reach out to us if you got a if you got a clarity question. When we initially reached out to him in March of 2016, what we did was we made an appeal, thinking that us as Black Reformed Christians at that time, us as representative of the Reformed African American Network would at least garner us a hearing in the sense that he would say, okay, well, maybe this group of people who are African-Americans, um, who, who do come from the Black diaspora, maybe they can speak into this, so maybe I'll listen to it. So it was an appeal. Man, we appealed to you to reconsider this statement. It wasn't like, man, let's get into a debate, and let's talk about the finer things of this, this, and that, and that. It was like, what? Like We thought this was based upon relationship, and so that's why we reached out via appeal. But now we recognize, hey, that's, that may not be the case. So maybe you think we're, even, we're not even in the gospel. In one of his recent blog posts, he called Jamar agnostic or called his views agnosticism. So I don't know whether he thinks we're believers or not. So why would we come on his show? Why would we do that? If someone is consistently misrepresenting you, why would you give them an audience? That's a dignity question. Why are we doing that? And so to say that we don't interact with the other side is to think that that's the other side. I don't think that's the other side. I think that's someone who is maybe misinterpreting or misinformed about what we believe and has decided to take it and run with it. And so we say, man, God bless you. But we're not just gonna have a conversation publicly to satisfy sides and tribes and get into that back and forth when we could be doing real things on the ground that promote what we claim. Yes. I'm done. <laughs> this
1: is so good, man. I love it. Um... So I think you could sort of summarize both of these podcasts, part one and part two, as putting people on game. That's what I think we're doing because we've been really
0: OK, OK, yes. OK,
1: okay, all right people on game because we've been doing this thing literally for years. And it's more than just the podcast episode or the blog post that you read. We live this stuff day in, day out. We constantly texting, calling, communicating with people, going to conferences, you name it. Right. And so we've lived this for a long time in our ministry, and we see the little angles that people use, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I'm not ascribing motives to anyone. But here's the thing. If we go back to the statement itself, the statement, the statement on the gospel (laughs) and justice, to me, if you zoom out, there's a level of what I would call ecclesiastical arrogance. Again not ascribing motives, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. but here's what it comes off as because historically the black church tradition, which is diverse and, and has many manifestations, but in most of the black churches I've been to and a lot of the readings and sermons that I've accessed, I think you could have a reasonable generalization that black church traditions don't see a stark dichotomy between the gospel and social justice. In fact, one of the historic dividing lines, if you will, along race within the church has been on the issue of justice. And so this statement, to me, pays no attention to that tradition, to that ecclesiastical heritage of Black people, and not only Black people, other marginalized people groups Whether that be folks in Latin America, folks in South Africa, women, all of these groups have a certain perspective on justice because they have experienced injustice. And to me, I want to listen to the folks who have felt the negative impact power, misused and abused toward them, and listen to their perspective. And if I'm going to write a statement on the gospel and social justice, I want to be informed by those streams of thought, those theological patterns, and those experiential aspects of what they've been through. I didn't sense that in this statement, not ascribing motives, but I didn't sense that in this statement. So that was part of the reason I think people reacted so strongly and negatively, is because they grew up in Personal circumstances and ecclesiastical circumstances where justice was a huge part of the gospel. Is 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 integral to the gospel, right. not just a corollary, right? Not just a follow-along. And here's a here's a more theological, philosophical, abstract thing. I think we we, we try to put we say the gospel and justice. And, and and we put those things oh, right, as if right. they're completely separate. Right, the
0: framing, bro. Yes. The
1: framing. Oh my the goodness. The framing is important. When you add that conjunction, you're assuming a separation that I don't think the Bible has between gospel and justice. To believe the gospel is to pursue justice and to live justly, and to do mercy. Right. Right. And I think historically marginalized people have had a more integrated holistic view of theology in that sense of the theology in terms of orthodoxy and the theology in terms of orthopraxy and even orthopathos, right? Right? Uh, orthopathy, yeah. right? Um, and so first of all, the framing itself is a big deal, whether you're framing the gospel and justice or making the statement without being informed by the historical streams of other traditions in the church, particularly the black church in America. Right. Um, so we put
0: people on game. You can't just take the statement at face value. Uh-huh. Let me, let me, let me speak to something here, because speaking of that black church tradition, um, one of the interesting things about this podcast is this is not the first statement that has been made by some of the signers regarding social justice. Um, so if there is maybe a, a a desire to push back a sweeping, you know, trend of, or wave of people, um, who have been talking about justice. This is their second attempt to do so. Um, probably within the last year, year and a half, they made another statement on justice as well. One that actually ended up, if I'm not mistaken, cause I cannot find that online. I don't know if they took it down or what have you, but it ended up quoting Francis Grimke. So I was like, man, this is really interesting. Like they quoted Grimke. Like I was like, really? Like, uh, okay. Like, <laughs> It was, it was very interesting because it was kind of the idea was that you know the the modern iterators of justice language were not using the language of Grimke um, were not using the language of someone as you know this model black minister and i'm 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 pretty sure this is the case, so correct me if I'm wrong someone um but what's interesting about that is Grimke himself talks about the duty of the christian to, in his words, keep up the agitation for our rights. Listen to this quote. It is our duty to keep up the agitation for our rights, not only for our sakes, but also for the sake of the nation at large. If justice sleeps in this land, let it not be because we have helped to lull it to sleep by our silence, our indifference. Let it not be from lack of effort on our part to arouse it from its slumbers." So, according to Grimke, according to someone who who both people say, hey, he was reformed. I mean, led you know his agreement with W. E. B. Du Bois led to NAACP. Like, okay, so we're saying this is a person who who, who firmly not only stayed within theological um, uh, orthodoxy, but also felt that it led to some sort of justice, according to him. And according to many of people like him who are black ministers uh, of antiquity, they would say it is our responsibility, our duty to agitate towards justice. Because our duty to agitate towards justice is not just for ourselves, but for the people around us, for society. That out of a desire, not just for us, but out of a desire for the people. Listen, man, we talked about it like a year ago. I got called the N-word. My, my anger in the situation is superseded by my hurt and pain that this man in his depraved state, in his blind state, cannot see how this dehumanizes him. That for him to look at me as something less than a created image bearer of God, for him to look at me as anything less than someone who deserves dignity and respect and has intrinsic inherent worth, regardless of my cultural affiliation. Regardless of what I I may say or do, regardless of anything that he can see with, he didn't even meet me. I mean, I don't even know the man's name because he just came up to me and started talking crazy. But my desire to see justice vindicated in that situation is actually superseded by my love for him to say, listen, man, like this is dehumanizing you. This actually uh, mars the image of God in you. Mm. And so what we recognize here is, is that black churches and black religion, particularly in America, has this really broad range to address not just what we desire or what we need, what we deserve, but also what the surrounding society who's peeping in must understand about the overall health and life and, and soul of the nation. We appeal because this dehumanizes you. This hurts you this is, just as much as it hurts us. That's
1: how Jesus prayed, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He was even being know. wronged in that moment. But in that moment, his compassion for the people who were doing the wrong and what harm it did to them themselves was his prayer. It wasn't for relief. It wasn't for, for his vindication. It was forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they don't even know not only is it harming me, but it's harming them too. And that's that's just the verse that came to mind as you were talking.
0: Um so so let's 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 hop into this because I think I, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about the the meat of the question. And the meat of the question and the meat of the podcast is very simply, is social justice a distraction from the gospel? Whoo, is this a distraction? Like, is this something I'm, like we need to directly answer this? Now, you had an article that you were asked to write. You're asked to write um, by the yeah, religion news. <laughs> yes. You were asked asked to write by the religion news service, um, religionnews.com. It's entitled Battle Lines Form Over Social Justice. Is it gospel or heresy? One of the interesting things that you talk about is, you know, what we should do with the signers, right? like what we should do with the signers and how we should respond to this. Now, I want you to I want to give you the opportunity to just talk about that a little bit before we get into like, yo, let's answer this question. Is social justice a distraction from the gospel? But you said, um, I'm tempted to refute the recent statement on the gospel and social justice point by point, showing how it falls short of the Bible's call for justice. But I think our time will be better spent on other pursuits. There's too much work to be done, work that will be delayed by endless debates. Here's my advice. Many of the people who authored and signed this statement have large ministries and platforms, avoid them. Find other authors, preachers, and teachers from whom you can learn. People like Austin Channing Brown or podcasters and bloggers at Truth Table or The Witness, where I'm a contributor. Or read Howard Thurman, the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Brian Stevenson, James Baldwin, or the other writers who have explored issues of justice. The supporters of statements that dismiss social justice as a distraction from the gospel, headline a major conference, state your concerns to the organizers. If nothing changes, then don't go. If they do an interview on a podcast, find another episode to listen to. If they write more blogs to state their case, share other ones instead. Talk a little bit about this, man. Why is this your response? People are like, man, you avoiding them? Nah, that's not right. You just mm-hmm. running from the argument. Why are you saying avoid them?
1: Okay. So, Heads up. This is a three-part response. The first two will be brief. Number 1. A lot got cut from this article cuz I had a lot to say. I'm glad they cut it for brevity's sake, but I want to add that one part in there was they pointedly used the term social justice. To me, personally, I don't make a big deal about what word you put in front of justice. Because to me, any true justice is biblical justice. And so you <laughs> right. can say
0: social justice, biblical justice, biblical like, justice
1: gospel whatever. justice, right? I gospel just say justice. justice. I really don't put a qualifier on it. Speaking as a Christian, I mean, God's version of justice outlined in the moral law, the 10 commandments, but also explicated um, in the gospels, particularly uh, portions like the sermon on the Mount, but the entire Bible is ethical instruction. And so I don't make a big difference, right? So, so I think there's a conversation to be had between what social justice means and what social gospel means particularly historically but also theologically right so just if I bounce back and forth it's because I am operating on the premise that justice means God's justice right and so that's that's how I use it right so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even entitled I wouldn't have used and probably probably and I probably wouldn't have qualified that that word justice with any other word. So that's just a precursor. The second part is if we if we bounce back for a moment to John MacArthur's statement. Now, look, I don't have anything personally against MacArthur. I don't think I've met him personally. I know I've been in the same room. I don't know if we've spoken. Um, But if we met, you know, on an airplane or on the tram at Disney World or something, I don't think I'd have a problem with, you know, talking to this brother, right? Like, and I'm not saying that he hasn't been helpful in other areas. I'm just saying that in this part, he sounds like he's out of his lane. And so what he sets up in his blog post series, it's unstated, but I think you can reasonably assume uh because he makes a, a statement about that it's that this idea of social justice which he positions as harmful has even crept into some of his evangelical and reform circles. And let's get this straight. When someone says that, whether it's MacArthur or someone else, they're talking about folks like Ligon Duncan, Chancellor of RTS, whom I know personally. They're talking about folks like David Platt. They're talking about folks like Matt Chandler. They're talking about folks like Russell Moore, who no one, any of those men, no one would accuse them of having gone off the rails theologically. Rather, these men have addressed issues of race and Not from that, not from that side, justice. not from
0: that group. No, not, 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 Well, I no, mean, no one would accuse them of being like so far liberal that. Uh, well, you know, I think we should. I think, we should I be think that's say because is, I think that that is true that some people would consider them like super. That's liberal. right,
1: and that's what I'm saying is that these are the folks, these types of folks, and the statements that they've made, which I think many of our listeners have applauded when they've talked about race and justice. That's being set up as a threat to orthodoxy. those, those are the only people in this sort of narrow tribe of Christianity that I can think of he might be referring to in that statement. And and we'll try to post the the exact quote in in the show notes. But are those the enemies? Are those really the enemies of the gospel? Because I don't think they are. And I think that there's a perception from a particular vantage point that any talk of race And justice, uh, particularly from a large platform at a conference, in in sermons at a large church or whatever, um, is somehow distracting from evangelism, right? Like that's a critical piece of it. So we'll go into more of that later because you asked the question, Tyler is is this a distraction from the gospel? So we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that. But as far as my article, this is part three, folks. Thanks for hanging with me. Pat yourself on the back. (laughs) But part three. We learned when we were the Reformed African-American Network that despite our intention, what had happened over time was we were giving apologetic commentary for the Black experience to white Reformed Christians. And like that had become our total ministry. So all we were doing was responding and all we were doing was explaining again and again and again in 10 different ways to people who, most of the time we didn't, know them. These were online folks, you know, that's not in our local congregation or our local networks. And so we're trying, and, and then what, what I realized, and I, Tyler, I think you realized this long before I did, and a lot of people did long before I did, but what I realized was uh, we, in doing that, we weren't leaving space to actually address the core concerns of black Christians. Mm-hmm. And so when we made that transition t- from ran to the witness, part of what we were doing was saying, we want to intentionally focus on the concerns Of black people and black Christians and not just be responsive, not just be reactive. And so we talked about that a little bit in part one. And so this article on the Religion News Service is simply saying, listen, don't get caught up in going tit for tat, point by point on this. Why? Because Toni Morrison said the function of racism is distraction. Hmm. And Hmm. this is a distraction to the people who are truly concerned about ending racism or reducing it significantly, and working for justice, then do it. Work to curb racism where you are. Work for justice where you are. Because this conversation, you're you're, you're most likely not going to change their minds, particularly through an online debate. Rather, spend your limited time and energy actually improving the circumstances of the people around you, and the people who are marginalized. So don't get distracted. Mm -hmm. Stay on mission to do justice and to love mercy. That's all I wanted to convey.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important for us to talk about the reason why we're responding to this in particular is because this is talking about really the character and the nature of God. And when we proclaim God's kingdom on this earth, we should be proclaiming the holistic character of the king, and it's important for us to recognize that when the Lord says that I love justice, when he says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne, well, that's what David declares in Psalms, um, in Psalms 97, right? Like, So when he, when he says that, we recognize and we step back and we say, hang on now, this is, this is core because God is telling us that I am not for the mistreatment of the people I created. I am not for, I do not stand on that kingdom where other kings have mistreated the marginalized and the vulnerable. Our God says, no, I come in and, and I restore them. I repair that which was broken. I raise up those who are put down. I lift up those who were oppressed. I liberate those who have been captives. What's fu- was funny and what's so fascinating is we didn't feel like whether or not we changed the name from <laughs> Reform to African American that way to the Witness, we didn't feel like we needed to leave Christianity. We felt like everything that we needed, everything that was already we were already saying about justice, everything that we were saying popularly about you know whether or not we're you know we should be involved or concerned with you know the matters that are going on, whether it's hashtags or whether it's um, You know, black women in childbirth, whether it's um, economics, whether it's healthcare, whether it's gentrification, whether it's education, whether it's redlining, we sat back and we said, man, the character of God as represented in the scriptures affirms this. He does care about this. If he didn't care about this, he wouldn't say that he loved the, the right treatment of people to defend, to speak up for those who are mute. Proverbs 31, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. He wouldn't say that. And so we didn't feel like we needed to go outside of Christianity to find something else to to fit in. We're like, man, this is found in the scriptures. So what we're saying is like we recognize that, listen, there may be people who don't derive every single line and and tenet of scripture. They might not be believers as of yet. They might not believe that Christ is king. But we recognize that, listen, they're at least saying that there is a brokenness and a marring from sin that has happened in our world something is drastically wrong. Something is dramatically off as what it should be. And so we, they recognize through the common grace of the spirit that, hey, we can see clearly that something is off and we need to change it. Now, we might disagree about the ways in which that needs to be changed, or we might disagree with the language that is used, but at least we can acknowledge, listen, we don't have to go outside of scripture for the solution that is right here. Mm-hmm. And that if we're going to be participators in the kingdom, We say, no, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be participators of that. And so that is core. That's central to what we believe as far as gospel character, as far as gospel fidelity, as far as living out our lives as representatives of Jesus. How could the representatives of Jesus be unjust, man? Like how how would we represent the king? How would we represent the Lord who saved us from our sins, would we go and we say, oh, well, we're going to be unjust. We don't care about that. What do you mean you don't care about that? Man, the Lord is concerned with every part of his kingdom. And so this really gets down to how we proclaim the character and the nature holistically of who God is. And no, he's not just all about justice, but that is core to him. And we can't ignore that in the scriptures. And so if we're faithfully reading the text that we have, the revealed word of God. We say, man, well, of course. So we didn't feel like we needed to go outside of Christianity. We are the black a black Christian collective. We we wear that proudly. We're unashamedly Christian. We know who we serve. Like we know how we order our lives. The Bible is what is central to us. But what we do recognize is, man, something is wrong. And so when people say, man, there's there's this is a distraction from the gospel. They we say, "Well, What should we be talking about? Just like Greek and Hebrew? Like, that's it? Like, should we just be talking about just theological tribal debates? Should we just be talking about that? Or does the way in which people live their lives on a day-to-day basis, if you don't know how many people are living in poverty in your city, and you don't have no skin in that game, if you're not feeding the hungry, if you're not actually working to clothe the naked, if you're not working to make sure that kids don't go to school, you're you talking about them because of their culture, but then you don't see if they have enough food to eat. You're like, man, look at that dude with his pants. Does he have food? Do you know him? Do you know his name? Like, I'm around black young people all the time. That's my job. That's my life. And I'm mm. seeing, I'm interacting with people who have real concerns, people who come from broken homes enough to get need to be adopted by church folk. Church folk stepped up and adopted them. Church folks stepped up and they were in foster care. Church, church folks stepped up and they ran drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Church folks go to the prisons every second and fourth Sunday to talk with the inmates to make sure they got everything that they need, to make sure that they're pursuing an education even in the prison system, to make sure that they're getting the proper defense, to make sure that they're hearing the gospel, all those things. I'm just saying, man, like what are we what are we talking about? Is this just happening online? Is this just happening on Twitter? Or are we truly concerned with the way in which God's image bears, the way in which people, human beings are living, man? I think this is cool. And core. to be charitable, right?
1: I think so. <laughs> I love this. Because in this podcast, y'all are hearing, like, the pulse oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. of so much of what we do. This so that's why we're so This is like, like, the so this this
0: like behind the scenes.
1: Super behind the scenes. It's like our philosophy of engagement right here. But um, I think to be, you know, to be... As generous as we can possibly be, I would say that the authors of this statement are not in any way saying they don't care about people suffering or the harm done sure, to them. Sure, no, that's not what, what I'm saying. I would that's say. not what I'm saying. Right.
0: But right, what I'm right. saying is when you couch no, that no no no, but when you couch that as as justice, when you like, man, justice is a far lesser concern than the proclamation of the word. We sit back and say, Man, why would you why would you dichotomize that to begin with, right? Like, Why would you mm-hmm. dichotomize these things? Why would you make it seem as though one will diminish the other?
1: That's what I think is, is one of the fundamental differences here. And we can differ on this without accusing one another of heresy, right? So let's put that out I there. I
0: think it's possible. I'm say I don't know, something though. I, that, I
1: think it's possible. This it may be, maybe, in the body of Christ united by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm about to say is going to sound controversial. But I think if you understand and I communicate clearly, it's really not. And so what I have to say is there is such a thing as studying theology too much. Uh Uh-oh. By that, (laughs) by by studying theology too much, I mean to the exclusion of other disciplines, other academic disciplines and other sources of knowledge. So it gets fundamentally to the question of God's common grace. Can truth be found in traditions and in thought patterns other than Christianity. Common grace tells us yes. Why? Because God lets rain fall on the just and the unjust. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God, and so can, at times, find truth, even if they don't know it's God's truth. But it was Calvin, I believe, who said all truth is God's truth, <laughs> right? boy, right? So that's w- what we do. We have an integrated view of, of the world, which means not only do I study theology, and by the way, I think there are some theologians who are more helpful than others. I think Bavink has, has been helpful in, in my thinking, but there are lots of other theologians like uh, 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 Howard Thurman, like Martin Luther King, like uh, many women who don't have necessarily the, 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 the book backlog that some men do, but have uh, contributed helpfully to the church. Christopher J. Wright. Okay, now, look, ask Tyler; he'll give you a long yeah. list. And, and by the way, on, go the <laughs> we meeting. got
0: a list on a witness. So I ain't gonna really like to. We <laughs> have a list on Google, works, Google works. Yeah, Google
1: we'll works. put that in the show notes too—a link to it. But anyway, my point is, if your only source of knowledge is theology, then you're actually missing out. Because I'm gonna be real honest with you, mm-hmm. saints. I think that non-Christian people and secular outlets have actually made a lot more progress in understanding the causes and consequences of racism than many parts of the American church. And so guess what? We need to take a humble posture and learn from them. Even though they may not be Christians, that doesn't mean they don't have helpful things to say. And so I would let our listeners know, Access these other things. Look, why are you working so hard to understand the Bible? Is so you have a grid to judge what you're reading and what you're learning, which means you should have all boldness to go out and access other streams of thought. Tyler, you mentioned that Paul says, as your poet,
0: yeah, says. yeah, yeah, Acts 17, right?
1: Like he was accessing the popular culture and the literature of his context and he engaged with it. And actually, in that moment, he didn't just poo-poo it for not being Christian. He's saying there's actually consonance here between a theme that your poets are writing about and what I'm talking about here. So he's using that as a bridge. And instead of using culture and other non-Christian, non-theological ideas as a bridge, we're using it as a wall. Hmm. And we I think we need to tear down that wall. And I think we need to understand that everyone is an image bearer and a potential believer in Jesus Christ. So that's 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 one major thing. I'm just talking sort of theological hermeneutics here. Let me let me can I mention one more?
0: Yeah, please. Go ahead. All
1: right. So this idea of proof texting. So a lot of times,
0: folks. On (laughs) we really gonna do this? Wow. Okay. I
1: if not now, then when? Right. (laughs) A lot of times, folks who are advocating this really big difference between the gospel and justice are gonna sound really good because number one, they're saying evangelism and conversion are the primary principles in the Christian life. And they're going to use all these kinds of individual texts to sort of back that up. I want to say that a lot of other Christian traditions, particularly the Black church tradition, has a much more holistic view of the Bible and of Scripture. And so everybody talks about the kingdom of God, right? If you're Christian, it's in the Bible, you you mention it. But I think the way that affects hermeneutics is on an issue like justice— is not necessarily, although we could, it's not necessarily that we point to individual scriptural texts, but we understand the entire thrust of scripture (laughs) is toward justice. And because we're informed by more than just theology, which tends to be Western and Eurocentric or Euro-American theology at that, we understand that racism and injustice takes more forms than just interpersonal interaction. It's not just one person being unkind to someone else. It actually can express itself in entire systems that do not require intentional malice on the part of individuals to actually perpetuate injustice. So from a hermeneutical perspective, that's a big difference. We're not always proof texting. When we're talking about right. justice, we're saying God is a God of justice. That's and it's a character. I don't actually need actually the whole Bible right. speaks of that, right. and I don't need one individual yeah, verse to, shoot, to shoot, prove shoot it. But that doesn't mean like, we're not just, being biblical. We're just
0: shooting scriptures, like we go back and forth. Like here's this scripture. What about this scripture? What are, it's like, man? That's bad synthesis. Like what is the, what is the scripture pointing us towards? Like as a comprehensive document, like what's it doing? Like what are what are the what are this the biblical writers predisposed towards? Like what are they writing about? a good and holy God as it relates to justice? And does it seem as though they don't care? And does it seem as though this God in the tone, in the way in which it's presented, in 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 his interactions, does it seem as though it's just like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like, no, there's, it's it's just synthesis. Like, so I think, you know, again, that's a, that's a lot of call out culture. That's a lot of, you know, back and forth. We got to get into the back and forth and we got to shoot back and forth. And then this, I got to take you to the Greek and the Hebrew and I got to, well, I mean, you know this this statement did say, you know, simple reading, clear, clear, clear reading, simple understanding. Wow. I mean, that's what that they is. said. And so, that's if it's true. clear and simple, let's let's take a clear and simple look. Let me say, this. No, go, man, well, man. It ain't, it ain't no clock. Okay. Come on, man. Like, ain't no time <laughs> clock. <right>. Bo ain't <laughs> wrapping us up, man. We just up, bro. We up drinking water and and talking, you know, about God.
1: I've got one. I've got one final word on the statement itself, and then I want to talk to the quiet exodus, and, and we can break that up however you want. But my, 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 word, my final word on the statement is this, that there has to be solidarity through incarnational proximity.
0: Hmm.
1: Solidarity through incarnational proximity. Let me break that down. So solidarity, that's the weep with those who weep. Experience joy with those experiencing joy. That is, I'm alongside you in what you're going through. I'm not ahead of you. I'm not behind you. I'm alongside of you. It's this withness, if I can say that withness with other people, particularly who are from different backgrounds, whether racial, economic, ethnic, gender, what have you. It's the idea that we're side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're experiencing harm or injustice, that matters to me. So solidarity. But, but how does solidarity come? And I want to say that a big part of solidarity, I think you can get it from scripture reading. I think you can get it from uh, the communal experience of, of congregational worship. I think you can get it from information and inform yourself about issues. But I also think that a huge part of solidarity comes through incarnational proximity. By incarnational, I mean we're getting our pattern from Jesus Christ himself who took on flesh, who shed his glory to enter into our experience and was tempted in every way as we were tempted. And so knows what it means to be human in every way except for sin. He experienced full solidarity because he incarnated himself into our experience. And so that incarnational presence, he came with us. I love that name, Emmanuel, God with us. And in a derivative sense, not an identical sense, but a derivative sense, we also have to engage in incarnational proximity. So I think in a practical level that a lot of the sort of offensiveness of this statement on the gospel and social justice comes from a pervasive, unspoken, nevertheless, very sensible, very tangible, very visceral sense. that the signers or the authors of this statement have not had incarnational proximity to the people who are most marginalized in our society, at least not in a prolonged way, or at least right. not all of them that came way, came through in the right. And so my word then is simply this. If you want to have solidarity with the marginalized, you need to get near them. You need to get close to them. You need to know them. You need to hear them. You need to listen to them. You need to learn from them and not just Tell them, instruct them, correct yeah, them. Yeah, maybe submit to them too. In.
0: Like we need to say that, man. Like, yo, Amen. you may you may need to sit under some somebody, man. You may need to sit down. Like Absolutely. that's okay. Like I'm 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 learning that, you know, just as a young man, like man, it's okay to sit down. Like just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so sometimes you need to listen to people who have maybe a little bit more expertise and wisdom in this particular area than you.
1: Amen. So that's my word that's my last word on the statement is for for anybody who wants to get better at this including me what we have to do is develop solidarity through incarnational proximity
0: what are some other and the more we oh no go ahead go finish ahead. finish finish i'm sorry
1: the more we do that the more we'll understand how something like a systemic issue can affect people we know and care about because if we know and care about them then we'll care about what affects them
0: what are, what are some other statements? Because I'm hearing people say, like, man, I wonder if the people who are for justice or for social justice and who claim to be Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians, I wonder if they're going to write a statement. And I was laughing. like, man, we already did. Um, <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> there a bunch of them yes. out there. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, give a statement. I, I, I'll give one in particular, you know, the Charlottesville Declaration, which, you know, see the it, witness put it. out so you can actually find that, you know, it's an appeal to the church in America um, regarding racism, ethnocentrism, etc., um, in response to the Charlottesville debacle, over a thousand people signed that. So um, you you can check that out on the witness. But then there's another one historically as well that was that was given.
1: Yes, yes. So I encourage everyone to Google this document. It is called the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern. The Chicago Declaration of evangelical social concern. It was actually penned and adopted in 1973. So again, this gets to a statement uh, in MacArthur's blog that this is this stuff is recent. This stuff is, just with the Chicago Declaration, more than 40 years old. <laughs> so it was nothing new uh, in terms of these debates and conversations in the church about the gospel and justice, if you want to separate it like that, right? Um, and I commend to you a fantastic book that details not only the Chicago Declaration but the um, the historic context of it, and it's called "The Moral Minority: The Moral Minority: The Evangelical Left in an Age of Conservatism" by a historian named David R. Swartz S W A R T Z. And before we move on, let me just give you a, a quick sampling of the Chicago Declaration. Yes, yes. It's a very short one. Um, you can read it quickly. And it says that we cannot, therefore, separate our lives from the situation in which God has placed us in the United States and the world. It's skipping down. It says, we deplore the historic involvement of the church in America with racism and the conspicuous responsibility of the evangelical mm. community for perpetuating the personal attitudes and Institutional structures that have divided the body of Christ along color lines. Further, we have failed to condemn the exploitation of racism at home and abroad by our economic system. Uh, It says, before God and a billion hungry neighbors, we must rethink Mm. our values regarding our present standard of living and promote a more just acquisition and distribution of the world's resources. And lastly, it says, we must resist the temptation to make the nation and its institutions objects of near religious loyalty. Hmm. Um, So, and I want to say some, it's really heavy. It's a fantastic statement. Much of what we we have written and and would write in, you know, in in the 21st century. And I want to just mention a couple of the original signers, if I may. Um, One, Carl F.H. Henry a giant in white evangelicalism. Um, another, Carl McIntyre, another very well-known person. I also want to mention that uh, John Perkins signed Correct. This as one of the original signers. And, and that's pointed because John Perkins is who John MacArthur referenced as uh, demonstrating his involvement in the civil rights movement. And so his good friend, John Perkins, and naturally you don't agree with your friends on every single thing, but if you're mentioning your friend to assert your involvement in justice issues and in the civil rights movement, then I think it's important to mention that this friend signed this statement on uh, the evangelical social concern. So I commend that document to you just to read and review and the book, Moral Minority, the Evangelical Left in an Age of Conservatism.
0: Bruh, we gave more than what they expected. We had a lot Bruh, to say. We We've yeah. been holding in. We've been talking. There's more to come. May y'all keep it locked in. We'll see y'all on the next Pastor Mike.